The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed has, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Many of you may have heard the name Peter Gomes before. If you haven't, uh, you should. You should. He's the minister of the... Uh, Memorial Church of Harvard University and a terrific writer and preacher and teacher and speaker. I've had the good fortune to hear him speak at a, a commencement and also to be taught by him at a clergy day. I also uh, uh, recently, for a bit of inspiration, I turned to one of his books called The Good Book, Reading the Bible with Mind and Heart. Some of you may know it. It's a wonderful book and would make actually a great uh, lengthened discussion book or uh, a book to be studied on Wednesdays uh, with the study group there. Anyway, one particular section caught my attention. It was a section on the Bible and joy. The Bible and joy. I'll return to his book in a moment, but I want to say that uh, I've been thinking and praying and uh, contemplating joy already because of partly because our uh, readings, our first reading this morning from the book of Isaiah is just so saturated with joy. You just can't get away from it. It just oozes out of every word. And also, uh, this particular season of the church year, Christmas tide, is also really a joyful one. So I've been thinking about joy. And um, I've been thinking about it in particular uh, in distinction from happiness. The difference between joy and happiness. Happiness, I think, is somehow dependent 
on external circumstances. Uh, what's going on around us it can make us happy or unhappy. But joy, I think, is different. In fact, joy may often defy outward circumstances. It doesn't take any uh, account, really, of outward circumstances. I think of the benediction that comes at the end of our Eucharistic service, taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. Joy often surpasses understanding. Happiness, while good, for sure, is, I think, somewhat superficial. Joy, on the other hand, while also good, is also more hearty. It's, it's sturdier. It has deeper roots. While our American birthright, as enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, joy, on the other hand, I think is a bit more elusive. While perhaps the preconditions for joy can be worked on, we can work to make good choices in our lives, we can uh, work at our prayer life, we can work at service, we can do all the things that our tradition and the Bible tell us are good for us to do, we can't really grasp joy, although we may try. It usually pops up unexpectedly, and we need to train our faculties to receive those moments for what they are, which is great gifts. If you think of, uh, perhaps we can think of having joy antenna that uh, we, we sensitize to pulling in the joy signals that, that are all around us, but we need to learn how to uh, receive. I was also thinking in terms of joy, how it's kind of ironic, but I think true, that cultures that have experienced the greatest suffering and uh, deprivation often produce the music that is most joyful. And of course, I'm thinking of the African-American culture and what came out of slavery uh, has produced this joyful tradition of gospel music um, that continues to this day. Well, Peter Gomes, in his book, as you might expect, puts a much finer point on all of this. Gomes observes that the context of joy is not delight, but deprivation. And a bit later he says, suffering is the context of joy. Even as darkness is the context for light, and silence the context for hearing. Joy that is complete and full transcends, indeed overcomes its context, and is not bound by the limitations of its context. And he goes on to outline in more depth what this has meant uh, in the black church, and particularly beginning uh, under slavery. He says, Their joy, the slave's joy, was a consequence of what they had discovered and knew to be true. And this was beyond the level of mere speculation and guesswork. They sang because they knew themselves to be at the thin place between this world and another. And while their daily existence might be bound 
hand and foot to a world in which there was little about which to be glad, they nevertheless knew that they had a title to a mansion on high. And that knowledge was so delicious, so absolute, so paradoxical, that they had to sing about it. Such joy did not make sense out of reality. It transcended and overwhelmed what passed for reality. Now, if we look at the passage from the book of Isaiah that we heard this morning, the context of that passage is actually suffering as well. It was likely written in the 500s before Christ, after the fall of Babylon to the Persians. Now, after Babylon fell to the Persians, the Jews who had been captive there, when the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem and carted them back with them to Babylon, the Jews who were in Babylon were permitted to come back and to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed and could once again be the centerpiece of their religion. And they also had a chance to rebuild the society that, they had, that had been taken from them and to rebuild it on biblical principles of justice and righteousness. The hope was that the rebuilt Jerusalem would be a model to the nations of God's intention for the world. Now, of course, right there, in that little uh, return from the exile, that is, of course, a joyful, joyful occurrence. But the context, of course, had been the conquering of Israel, of Jerusalem, of Judah, by the Babylonians. And as the Hebrew Bible took its final shape through the centuries leading up to Christ's birth, and then in the first century after Christ's birth, the Jewish people again suffered from conquest. The Greeks, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and finally the Romans. And today, one might add that we still await a Jerusalem that is a model to the nations of righteousness and justice and peace. So the context of that passage that we hear this morning is one, I would argue, of suffering and deprivation. But that moment of joy so clear, so overwhelming, that it retains its rightful place in this history of the Jewish people and is enshrined in Scripture, both for Jews and for Christians. While joy in the midst of despair is a historical theme of the passage from Isaiah, light in the midst of darkness is one of the themes in the Gospel passage from the Gospel of John. And in some respects, the contexts are similar. Like the prophet Isaiah rejoices at the joy that comes from God in the midst of a tragic history, so the writer of John declares that Jesus shines in the darkness. And the darkness is no less real for the light, but likewise, the light is no less real because of the darkness. We might think about it in another way. I'm using the words here of William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury 
just before the Second World War. He writes a wonderful little book called Readings in St. John's Gospel. And he says, Imagine yourself standing alone on some headland in a dark night. At the foot of the headland is a lighthouse or a beacon, not casting rays on every side, but instead throwing one bar of light through the darkness. The divine light shines through the darkness of the world, cleaving it, but neither dispelling it, neither dispelling it, nor quenched by it. As we look forward, we peer into the darkness, and none can say with certainty what course the true progress of the future should follow. But as we look back, the truth is marked by saints and pioneers, and these in their turn are not originators of the light, but rather reflectors, which give light to us because they are turned towards the source of light. The darkness in which the light shines, unabsorbed, is cosmic. The evil which for John presents the problem is not only in the human heart, it is in the whole ordered system of nature. And John looks for the redemption not just of humanity, but of the universe. That's William Temple. The writer of John would certainly have seen darkness at the time of Jesus' birth. The Roman occupation, of course, being the overarching reality. And the darkness of the human heart, ever-present. Ambition, pride, greed, envy. The writer of John would have seen darkness around him as he composed the gospel somewhere in the last third of the first century after Jesus' birth. The temple had been destroyed again, this time by the Romans in the year 70, and Judaism had split further into, into warring factions as the Jesus movement within the synagogue gained strength. Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah were put, were, were put out of synagogues in a real and painful family feud grew into an unrepairable split by the year 100. So there's lots of darkness in John's world as he wrote that gospel. And it goes without saying that it's not hard to see darkness in our world today. And yet, in no way does the light stop shining. As John says in the Gospel, the light has not been mastered. The light has not been conquered by the darkness. As with joy, we need to train our receptors to see the light. It is there. Now the discovery of joy amid despair in the sight of light Amidst the darkness, these are among the most important gifts that the birth of Jesus symbolizes for us during the Christmas season. And they're gifts that we should, that we need, that we must prepare ourselves for the whole year long. 
But this particular morning, in this particular Christmas season, we have another thing that is a source of joy and light, and that is baptism. In a few moments, Erica Nijinsky and her son Sebastian, who also happened to be Gaylord Bernalson's daughter and grandson, will be baptized. They've chosen to step into that thin place where heaven and earth are very close together. And with great joy, we welcome them and you into the household of faith. May this step lead you into a life of receiving God's joy and seeing God's life every day, not just at Christmas time. Amen. Amen.